I don't know um, how you're all doing this morning. You all sprung forward an hour. Some of you are like, I came to church, ready to worship. I'm, I'm, I'm a little groggy. I'm going to give myself some coffee, some caffeine. And you went out and you're like, whoa, mini cups. Does this church have a budget crisis going on or something? Yeah, so today we're going to talk about giving. Everybody open up their wallets to first give. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. No, there's no budget crisis. There's just, it just happens that we've got the small cups and it's all good. You know, we've been talking about Lent, giving up things. So we're just trying to help you cut back on caffeine, helping you give up certain things, right? As we just have small cups. There's no excuses for that. Just wanted to make that aware in case you have all these questions and you have questions for the pastor. That's the one that just got answered. Second question is, what are we going to talk about today? Well, that's a good question. Grab your Bibles, get them ready. You're going to be opening them up to the book of Psalm. Not yet, but we will eventually get there. But we're going to be in the book of Psalms for a little bit this morning. Before we do, because I want to introduce a story to you. And there's going to be a couple of stories today. And a good story usually has all of the same elements in it. Usually there's a hero. The first character is introduced. We see him as the, or her as the one that's going to maybe save the day. They get introduced. There's a good thing. But then there's a problem, a conflict that occurs. All right, we've got the main character. Now we've got the problem. And the question is, how is this going to unfold? Because well, now we get introduced to the villain. It's not just a problem. It's usually a villain. Somebody evil, right? Somebody that's got their own thing that they want to pull out. Well, now we watch everything unfold, the struggle, the good, the bad. And then we get to the end, and when there's a near-fatal ending, the hero steps in and emerges, and it's a good ending. That's usually how stories are built, unless it's supposed to be a tragedy, then, of course, the ending is a little bit different. But that's the story. And the Old Testament has many true stories, well, they're all true, but many stories in there that contain these elements. And there's one story in there I want to look at, because we've seen this young man before and grow up to be a, somebody pretty prominent and special. But there's a few things maybe we missed in this story. So let's begin with when he was young. The story's introduced this, this shepherd boy, this giant killer. His name is David. Over time, as we learn about David, he's a pretty incredible young man. He's after God's heart. But then, oh, this other person is introduced. His name is King Saul. King Saul's jealous of David. And he begins these multiple assassination attempts on the life of David. There's the conflict. You see how the story's going? Conflict's obvious. Now, during one point in time, David is married to King Saul's daughter, Michael. And she catches ear that her dad is trying to kill her husband. So she goes to David and says, Dad's, Dad's trying to kill you. And she helps him escape. So he gets out. He escapes. She rescues David from sure death. Life is good, right? In the book of Psalm, chapter 59, there is a moment when we find out how David felt about this very moment. See, when you look through the Bible, you, you read all these books as they're lined up, but what we don't have in the Bible often is a chronological order from when it first started date-wise. And if you're reading through the life of David when this happened, when he was rescued, insert Psalm 53. Or 59, Psalm 59, verse 16, 17, David says this. He writes this after he escaped. He goes, but as for me, I'll sing about your power, God. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. 
For you've been my refuge, a place of safety when I'm in distress. Oh, my strength, to you I sing praises. For you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. David was incredibly thankful to God for rescuing him, for saving him. And in the psalm, he expresses a few things. He talks about the power of God. He talks about the love of God. And then this joy is just bubbling out of him. Well, of course it is. He was just saved from death. But he recognizes who saved him. It wasn't just Michael, his wife. It was the power of God and the overall will of God and how God orchestrated things. David was a dead man physically, but he was rescued. And he expresses this to God. Thank you, God. Thank you so much. What we also know, though, about God is that he doesn't just rescue us from physical death. He also rescues us from spiritual death. Some of you in here, we talked about memorizing scripture last week. You've memorized Romans 6.23, where the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We understand that spiritually we've been rescued as well. Now, I'm sharing every week for this, this series as we're focusing on the Lenten season before Easter, about sin. And when we do something wrong according to God's word, we sin. We are committing, and I've used this picture multiple times, we've committed a criminal act against God. And it's like we're locked up. We're imprisoned by our wrongdoing. We, we can't afford bail. We can't escape. We can't get our way out. But there's one who rescues us. And that's the good news. That's what we've been following up with every week is that we have been rescued from our wrongdoings. Jesus Christ paid it our way out. He, he gave the bell, right? He, he set us free, paid that price. So David, who we just read about, he's been rescued from physical death and spiritual death. He recognizes God is his rescuer, not just physically, but spiritually. And he wants to be a man following God's heart. He's this shepherd boy that's growing up to be a young man. He's like, I want to pursue God. I want to seek God. I want to be somebody that lives a life that honors God. And matter of fact, if you look through the lineage of David and all the people that came after him, then we get to Jesus. From the line of David, Jesus was born. I mean, isn't that be great to be able to say, my, you know, great, great, so forth. And you sort of connect the dots there. Pretty amazing, right? But here's the thing. He seemed like he's the perfect man, a man of God, pursuing God's heart. But we find out, you know what also he is? He's also human. And he's still subject to sin. And he's still probably going to make some mistakes. And he did. He grew older. He had more challenges. He lost focus. After David's wife, Michael, helped him escape the area, King Saul took Michael and gave her to another man. David has fled, started a new life, so to say. 1 Samuel 25, verses 39 to 44, tells us that David later remarries a woman by the name of Abigail, and then Abinoam. Now he's got two wives. Okay, that could be challenging, right? Okay, I was waiting for it. You're going to be in trouble later, brother. Meanwhile, but it's true, you know, Multiple relationships. How do you handle this, right? Oh, it's going to get a little bit, a little bit more stickier here. Meanwhile, the leadership of King Saul declines. He dies. David now, after years of hiding and, and, and going undercover, comes forth. He is made king of the tribe of Judah. Years later, he'll be the king over all of Israel, but right now the king of Judah. 
Life continues for David. Second Samuel chapter 3, we read that David now has six kids and, wait for it, six wives. Yeah. This is what we call polygamy. Okay? This is what was socially accepted for kings back in that day. I, I stress socially accepted. It was not accepted by God. God made it very clear in the book of Deuteronomy 17. These are the things for kings that are set in place. And one of those things for kings was one wife, not multiple wives. God said, no, this is the way it's supposed to be. You might socially, culturally think it's okay, as we see a lot of things today. It's not okay with God. This is one of those things. But despite God's commands, we read in 1 Chronicles 14 that David married actually more wives and had more kids. The number's over 10 so far if you're trying to keep track. He's not listening to the God that he praised. Time moves on. There's years of war. There's victories on the battlefield. There's a lot of success. David now, being the king he is, reaching this, this point in his life where he's like, I'm pretty successful. I got a lot of wives. I've won a lot of victories. Life is really good for me. I think I'm going to take a break. It's springtime. There's actually another war going on. He should be with his soldiers at the battlefront. But instead, he's like, I'm going to stay home at the palace and just chill. So he's at the palace. He's taking it easy. And he's like, I'm sort of bored. It's the middle of the afternoon. So he goes up on the roof of his palace, starts wandering around, looking around, and whoa, what's that over there? He spots a, a young lady taking a bath on top of her rooftop. And he's like, whoa, I want that. And so he arranges for this young lady to come to his palace and he sleeps with her. Her name was Bathsheba. And oftentimes, you know, I sit there and think, how did he get to this point? Well, first of all, he wasn't where he was supposed to be at battle. He avoided his, his duties, right? Well, David is now committed the sin of adultery, slept with another man's wife. And what does he do next? He's like, man, I got to, Got to take care of this. So let's see. He tries to fix it as everything he can. He can't. And what he ends up doing is he ends up sending the husband to the front line of the battlefield and has everybody pull back so that he will be killed. David basically arranges the murder of her husband. And it happens. David then brings this grieving widow. Everybody's like, oh, poor Bathsheba. David's like, oh, I'll take care of her. Why don't you just come into my palace? Trying to, again, cover up his sins. Make it look like he's a good guy, right? This shepherd boy, this giant killer, this songwriter, this king is now a, a polygamist, a liar, an adulterer, a murderer. David's committed sin against sin. Crime against crime against a holy God. Months pass, Bathsheba's pregnant. Seems like this, this is all going to go unnoticed, Right? Nobody will ever know. Life goes on. We all know, however, that when we've done something wrong, it eats away at us, doesn't it? That's what sin does. We know when we've messed up. We know when we've committed a crime against the Holy God. We, we feel condemned. I mean, the, the devil's really good, by the way, of reminding us of that, accusing us. Even though we know in Romans 8, 1, it says, therefore now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We know when we've been forgiven, but for some reason the devil likes to tell us we're not. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, we find here a moment when 
David is now going to be confronted by a gentleman by the name of Nathan. He's a prophet of God. He comes to his palace to have a conversation. Yeah, life is good, Nathan, blah, blah, things are going on. But then Nathan gives a story, and David gets irate. He's like, well, whatever happened? You know, in this story here, and he gets all mad, then Nathan's like, I'm talking about you, David. And then this conviction, the Spirit of God falls upon him. He's like, I'm such a sinner. And he falls apart. He finally admits everything. And in Psalm 51, now we have the confession of a man who's been broken. A man who has sinned upon sin. I'm going to read this to you, and I'll put the words up on the screen from a different version. Uh, you might be reading out of the New Living Translation or maybe NIV. I'm going to put up the ESV because uh, the translation out of the Hebrew um, explains some of the words I want to mention here in a little bit. So let me, let's start in verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight... In truth, in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. I mean, he was truly sorry, and God forgave him. He confessed his sins to the Holy God, but God and God forgave him. And he's like, God, I know you don't want this big show. Hey, everybody, I want to confess my sins to the Holy God. And I'm bringing forward this animal sacrifice, and, and I'm making a big show of it. And he's like, God's like, I don't want a big show. I just want your broken heart. That's all I want. I want to hear it from you, David, verbally. I want you to verbally confess to me your sins. And in this verbal confession, David asked God to do a couple things here. I put this back up on the screen, verse 1 there, where it talks out. He says, I want you to blot out. I want you to wash away. I want you to cleanse me of these things. His transgressions, his iniquity, and his sins. Now, some translation just uses the same word, but it's different words. And the things that we might roll up into that one word, sin, David separated them out to describe what he did. The first word is transgressions. Basically, it's that moment when we've stepped over a line with something that God has already established. 
don't know if uh, for some of you are hunters in here. Some of you have uh, maybe grown up and sort of walked into other people's property. And I know as a kid growing up on our farm, we had surrounding uh, woods that we would go into. And we had one that was ours that, that my grandpa owned. But we had others. But inevitably, wherever you went, there's usually a sign posted on some of the trees that said, no trespassing. Or maybe there's a fence with a fence post and a sign that says, no trespassing. Basically, what's happening here is the authority, the person who owns this place, has said, this is my property. There is a line here. I've put a sign here that says, do not trespass. Do not go beyond that line. If you do, that is called trespassing. You all follow me on this? David is basically saying, my transgressions. Transgressions is this. Transgressions is trespassing. God has said, here's my word. Here's my commands. And when we step over his commands, we are committing a transgression. We are trespassing against a holy God. And this is a very selfish thing. That's the thing about trespassing is, I know that's not my property. I know I'm not supposed to be going beyond this point. I'm choosing to do it anyway. I'm choosing, even though somebody's told me not to step onto their yard or into their house or cross into their field, no trust. I don't care. I'm doing it. What is that called? It's called rebellion. It's called a selfishness, rebellious act. And David said, what I did was I trespassed against the holy God. So that was the first thing. And understanding that the spirit of rebellion, doing your own thing, do what you want to do. Don't listen to the estated authority. Who cares what the authority says? Transgression is trespassing, stepping over that boundary. And then the next thing he says is iniquity. Picture iniquity as an impurity. I've got my water bottle. I'm going for a long walk. My water bottle gets empty. And so as I'm walking and strolling, I'm like, oh, I'm so thirsty. And I come to this river. And I get to the river, I'm thinking, oh, good. And I sort of lean out and I put my empty bottle there and I let the water, the rivers just sort of flow. And I'm going, this is fresh water, right? It's not a stagnant pond or anything. It's a fresh flowing river here. And yes, and I go to get ready to take a drink. And I look and I hear some noise down upstream. And so I look upstream and, oh, there's, there's somebody up there and they're, oh, they're washing their clothes in the river. Oh, and there's a person swimming. And then you see somebody like, looks like they had a plate, like maybe they're camping or something, and they're just sort of washing off their plate in the river. And then you look further and you see uh, some, some farmer, gentleman, or rancher herding his cattle across through the river. And some of them stop to relieve themselves. And, and then they continue on. And then you're like looking at your bottle of water thinking, that was upstream, what's upstream flows downstream. It, but it looks clear. It looks good, but the truth is there are impurities in my water. That's iniquity. Iniquity is when in our life when we sit there and we say, I think I'm making the right choice. I think I'm looking pretty good. But you know what? Morally, there are impurities in my life that are keeping me from being right with a holy God. And then David recognizes not only his rebellious transgressions, but he recognizes his impurities in his life against the holy God. God is holy, completely pure. Hold myself up to God, you will see my impurities. And that's what David's asking for confession for. And then we go on to see, finally uses the word sin. We know sin is falling short of a 
God's holy standard. It's missing the mark. David describes all that he has done as being impure, missing the mark, trespassing. And he confesses and gives it all to God. When we look at our lives, I think we could all describe our lives in various ways. We, we, we are rebellious and selfish at times. Other times we just don't realize how, you know, some of the things in our lives are impure in our lives. We need to correct. And there's other things that's just sort of like, I just missed the mark. I tried, but I didn't do it. Regardless of what it is, it's sin. That's what locks us up in that prison cell of, of sin. David was freed, though, from his prison cell. He verbally confessed to God to blot him out, to wash him clean, to remove. He asked for forgiveness. And David is going to continue to be a king. But here's the thing. You can't erase the consequences of sin. Once we commit a sin, the consequences have been put into motion. God will forgive us for what we've done. But unfortunately, some of those consequences linger around. We see them. Sometimes they're unfortunately like scars in our lives. It's like I remember, that causes me to remember the pain in my life. I can't believe I did that. You can't do anything about that. God's forgiven you of that. The devil likes to remind you of that. Therefore now, though, what? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You've been forgiven. And we see that happen with David. David has prayed. Nathan comes back to him and says in 2 Samuel, he says this. Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven you. Isn't that awesome? It's like David has just wept and, and confessed his sins. And Nathan then comes to him and says, God forgave you. God forgave you. You're free. You're forgiven. And when we're forgiven, we can sort of picture Jesus freeing us, right? So like this picture, but here's the thing. Here's how it works. Again, not speaking by experience, okay? But when you're released from prison, you have to walk outside the prison. Then you work your way outside the gate. And somebody's out there to meet you, to pick you up. It doesn't work that way when you ask God to forgive you. What happens is, if you can sort of picture it like this, okay, I'm just using an illustration. It's like Jesus is outside the gate. He walks into the prison. He walks into your cell. He opens the gate. He frees you of the shackles. He looks you in the eyes and says, you're forgiven. And then he extends those nail-scarred hands and grabs your hands and says, let's go. You don't belong here anymore. You're free. And he walks us out of that prison cell. He tells us, oh, by the way, as we leave this prison, I want you to take off those prison clothes. That color doesn't look good on you. I want you to clothe yourselves with my righteousness. Various scriptures tell us, like Isaiah 61, 10, he says, I'm overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. He's dressed me with the clothing of salvation, draped me in a robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. Paul describes in a couple of different ways to the Romans. He said, instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't let yourself think about ways to indulge in evil desires. Like you're not wearing those clothes anymore. You're wearing freedom clothes. You're wearing the clothes of righteousness, doing right things. Psalm uh, Philippians 127. Above all, you must conduct yourselves as what? Citizens of, you're a citizen of heaven. You don't belong in the prison anymore. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ. We are dressed in this new righteous living. And then he walks us by Golgotha as we leave that prison cell. And he points up that, that cross. And actually, he doesn't even have to point. We just sort of glance and look up there and we realize 
that's what he did so that we could be free. He paid the price so that we could be free. And then he, he walks us by the tomb, the empty tomb, where he was for three days until he defeated death. And we're reminded that because he is now free and he is victorious, guess what? We are now free. We can be victorious. In this new state, in this new position, church, you have been forgiven. The old is gone. The new is here. I read this story about a Bedouin culture. Bedouin is basically, if you think of Abraham and Isaac, they lived in tents. They dwelled in tents. They didn't have a home. They just sort of moved to the desert. That's a Bedouin. And these people, as you saw in the Old Testament, there's a story about a Bedouin that happened that it was a heated argument between some young men. And the one man killed the other man. And he knew the ancient system, the inflexible system and customs of his people, that he was in trouble and he himself would probably be put to death because of what he did. So he fled. He, he ran under darkness of night. He went through the desert and tried to find a place to hide. And he ended up going to the tent of the tribal chief to sort of seek out his protection. The tribal chief took him in into his tent and hid the young Arab. And the chief assured him it would all be okay. I'll, we will settle this matter as it should be settled. Well, the next day, the young man's pursuers, those who were accusing him, who saw what he did, came after him. They found him there in that village, in that tent. And they protested to the chief that they needed to take care of the situation. The chief said, but I've given my word to this young man that I would protect him. But his accusers were like, but you don't know what he did. You don't know who he killed. And he said, but I've given my word to this young man. And then before he could finish his sentence, somebody yelled out, he killed your son, chief. And the chief's head just sort of dropped, deeply, visibly shaken with the news. He wasn't sure what was going to come out next. Everybody sort of stood and hushed, like, what's he going to say? What's going to happen? What would happen to this young man? Finally, the chief raised his head and said, He shall become my son, and everything that I have will be his. The young man certainly deserved death. He did not deserve this new life. He did not deserve this new love. But this story is a love, a picture of love in its purest form, right? It's beyond comprehension. I don't get it. But that's the agape love of God. He looks at the things we've done and we go running to them and our accusers come in and our God says, I've adopted them into my family. It's my child now. And I will give you what I own. That's you. Church, you've been forgiven. You have a new life in Christ. You are free. And I think about that. You know, do we deserve this freedom in Christ? No. Are we, in, are we entitled to a new life in Christ? No. See, we are a generation, it seems like a culture now, where everything, everybody deserves something. We're even told, right, you deserve a break today. I've heard that before, right? Have it your way. 
Got a bunch of little food jingles going on in my mind right now, right? But we think we're entitled to everything. We always talk about our kids think they're entitled to this and so forth. We hear about entitlement and deserving all the time. But when we comprehend the truth, listen, church, we're not entitled to anything. We don't deserve anything but death, spiritual death, separation from God. I think today when we realize what God has done for us, that should change things. That when we, when we realize we don't deserve anything, that we're not entitled to anything, but yet God gives us new life, that should change how we live. Last week, I encouraged you, pick up God's word. Go out, memorize it, use it. You're free. Live as victorious, free people of God. And today I want to say, here's another way I want to encourage you to live. Because during that time of life, we talked about giving up things, right? I'm going to give this up. I'm going to give that up. But here's the thing. I want you to not just give up stuff. I want you to grab stuff. I want you to grab an attitude of gratitude. I want you to be thankful. I want to encourage you to think about all these things. I don't deserve this. I don't, I'm not entitled to this. But God gave it to you. The story of David, if we go back to the first verse in Psalm 53, He talked about what? He talked about the power of God and the love of God and the joy that he is now experiencing. He was so thankful. See, when we're forgiven, we should be be expressing thankfulness. Today we have so much we can complain about. We complain about everything. Basically, all that complaining comes from what? An ungratefulness. And we think we deserve all things and that we're entitled to all things and we don't get it. It's easy to complain when we don't get what we expected. But the truth is, we don't deserve anything. Spiritually, we deserve hell. What are we entitled to as as people? Nothing. That's the way it is. So the fact that we don't get what we deserve, that's called mercy. And the truth that we get what we aren't entitled to, that is grace. Thanks to the grace and the mercy of God, we're rescued. So think about that. You think you deserve something? God said, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Thank you, because I really don't want hell. And then we think about what grace is, getting what we don't deserve. We deserve punishment. We deserve to stay locked up. But he gives us freedom and forgiveness. You know, I want to encourage you to take time today And just start right there with the grace and mercy of God and say, thank you, God. Thank you for forgiving me. As he forgave David, he forgives you and I. And that's a good thing, isn't it? So let's be thankful. Let's be thankful. Uh, It was probably about seven years ago or so, right about this time, spring. And I was coaching a, I think it was a 12U FCA baseball team, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I got to throw that in there. You'll understand why in a second. And something I like doing besides coaching is also coaching the, the heart of the player and, and helping them with attitude and character and, and things in their life. And so we were going to do have a little fun. I had all these computer keys. And I took these computer keys and basically had them in a bag and had every kid grab two keys, grab two keys. Everybody grabbed two keys. And they had letters on them, right? And I said, now using those two keys, whatever letter you have, what can you think of that you're thankful for? Kids are looking at their letters. What begins with the letter P, letter R that I'm thankful for? And are coming up with all these kind of things. It's awesome. One of my 12-year-old boys. Again, Fellowship of 
Christian athletes. This is the week before Easter. Okay? It's the week before Easter. You're supposed to be kids who are learning about Christ besides playing baseball. And this young man has two letters, J and C. Think about it. J and C, right before Easter, Christian team. What are you thankful for? This boy's like, he's so excited. It's like, yeah, what you got? I got the letters J and C. And I'm thinking, this is like a slam dunk, okay? But in baseball, I've just lobbed the softball to him. He's going to hit this one out of the park. He goes, gym class. Now, for those of you who don't get it, Jim doesn't start with a J. <laughs> Wrong letters. I was waiting for him to say Jesus Christ. Jim class came out. And I'm thinking, this is what we're working with right here. Yeah. So, I have to think about the things that I'm thankful for. I really do. Worship team, would you come up, please? This has been a year, and everybody gets it, and I, I almost get tired of saying it. You know, 2020 and quarantine and COVID. And it's like, I don't know if there's anything to be thankful for. I'm so glad that's over and glad we're in the new year. And there's nothing good that took place last year. I'm going to disagree with you. Because that was my attitude was like, I'm so good that year's over. Yeah, there was, there was obvious pain in a lot of your lives. Bad things took place over this past year. No doubt about it. I would not argue that. And some of you are still reeling in the pain from what took place over this past year. And I'm sorry for that. But in the midst of all that, I believe there's some things that you can still give God thanks for. I really do. What I decided to do is every, every night at 9 o'clock, Jenny sends out a text to our whole family and says, Hey, what are you thankful for? You guys have heard me share this before. And we all text back, thankful for this, thankful for that. And sometimes... Every now and then we got to prod a couple of our sons who forget. Um, and then they'll chime in the next morning maybe or give two. And, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go back to the day that we were put in quarantine over a year ago. And I'm going to look at all those text messages because I, I keep them all. And so I started writing down in my journal. And I started with columns A, B, C, D. And if it began with whatever letter, I was going to put it down. And um, this is what my journal looked like, okay? It looks like a mess is what it looks like right there, okay? And you can't really zoom in and see on it. And actually, there's another page. You flip the page and there's more. And when I was like, I got like the like letter C. And, and, and there's another letter, I think it was um, D maybe as well. I was running out of space. So I'm like writing sideways and writing around. Then I'm going down. They're like, oh, okay, I just need to start a new page. Start a new page. And, and then I was like, oh, family. Family and friends came often in our text messages. So I'd put a little star by family, put a little star by friends, and anything else that kept getting repeated. There's a couple in here that you actually made our group text. Congratulations, we're thankful for you. There's multiple times we said the church. That got up there quite often. And put a little star. Okay, then I stopped doing the stars because there's I was running out of room. Basically, I stopped then at um, January, I'm sorry, yeah, January 1st. I stopped. So I, from the time we were in quarantine to the end of 2020, that dreaded year that everybody hated, I looked at these pages and realized it wasn't that bad. I'm very thankful. There's a lot of things to find 
praise and thankfulness for. And it's like, I just think sometimes we get so clouded and wrapped up in those prison bars or those that, look what I did. David could have lived his life in misery, but he figured it out. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. And with forgiveness came freedom. And with freedom came praise. You know one of the greatest weapons we have besides God's word? You know what the next great weapon we have? It's worship. It's singing to God. It's praising God. It's giving him thanks. That's another awesome weapon. Devil's got to run when we start singing words of thanks to God. I want to encourage the church. I know my sins. Uh, I've been forgiven and, and I'm free. And I still mess up. But there's always a reason to give thanks. There's always a reason to give thanks. Would you stand, please? What are those reasons? Let's begin with this. God loves you. That's a great reason right there to say, thank you, God. He loves you. He loves you in spite of everything and anything you've done and will do. He forgives you. That's another great reason, right? Eternal life in his presence. Wow, that's another thing to say, thank you. There's so much. We can keep going, right? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for being an amazing God. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you. We thank you for a church that will gather and sing to you. Thank you for family, for friends, for situations that have come through this year. And God, even in the moments of crisis and pain, we thank you for those who came beside us to comfort us. We thank you for those who reached out with maybe just a simple message or a simple note. Thank you for those those notes, those reminders. Because with every note that came, with every message that comes, with every hug or handshake, there is your presence and love behind it. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. Thank you that when we confess our sins to you, you forgive us. Thank you that we can have eternal life in your presence. Thank you. God, we want to sing praises to you now. We love you, Lord. In our name we pray. Amen.